Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. I know some of you will think I may be losing my grip on reality. Not so fast. I know some of you will think I am about to bring you a bit of fantasy inspired by such Hollywood flicks as End of Days, The Day of the Beast, Judgment. Well, you can be the judge. I'll begin by saying I rushed at the opportunity to interview Kristen Van Uden, a well-read spokesperson for Sophia Institute Press, on a book that has just been reprinted. The book is by the late Father Vincent Maselli, titled The Antichrist, The Final Campaign Against the Saviour. Now, in Christian circles, Catholic circles, and even in wider circles, some secular, I presume, the Antichrist is this influential man, this charismatic figure prophesied by the Bible to oppose Jesus Christ and take his place before his second coming. Now, I don't want you to get frightened here. Stay with me. So now you know why it has inspired numerous Hollywood movies and a library of major books of non-fiction and fiction fame. Now, whether you believe it or not may be beside the point. The idea of the Antichrist has shaped and formed our Western culture for generations if you dig deep. And whether that culture is now witnessing a slow or terminal decline or not, the idea of the Antichrist is taken very seriously by many religious people and scholars, church leaders the world over. So again, stay with us as we interview Kristen Van Uden in this episode. Later in the episode, Kristen will tell us about her own work on the persecution of Catholics under communism. But nobody knows when this Antichrist is coming. He could be on Earth right now. He could be, yes. It's it's one of the things where we're we're given warnings. We're given, of course, the mark of the beast. There's been much discussion lately about what that could be, and especially in our technological world today, something that would be possible in a way that it has not been before. But this is one of the, uh, it's called the mystery of iniquity, one of the things that Christ himself tells us that we will not have an exact answer to. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Before we get to our interview with Kristen Van Uden on the Antichrist, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with Ira Wolf on the future of work and labor force trends. Welcome back to Future Shock 2.0, Ira Wolf. You've looked closely at the relationship between unemployment and the teen and male population. What did you find out? Yeah, this is fascinating, John. Appreciate it. I always love being back for Future Shock 2.0. We currently have one third of US teens that are not working. That was on a downward trend. Uh, when I first started to follow these trends in the in the 2000s, uh, there, was, there was definitely an uptick. Kids were, were working so many hours, they weren't paying attention to school. Um, because they were able to make money and, and get their independence. And then there was a backlash about that, that were, were we screwing up all the, the future workforce? 
because we were putting kids to work and paying them low wages and fast food. Uh, and then the trend sort of went away, you know, in the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, and it peaked in April 2020. This is a crazy statistic. In April 2020, right at the beginning of pandemic, teen unemployment reached 31.9%. Oh, 31.9%. Ridiculous. As of last month, it was 10.2%, which is almost the record of, of a year ago when it was under 10%. So one of the things that we're going to look at is where companies are now digging down into teens to put them to work, which is good, especially over the summer, gives people an opportunity, gives them experience, puts money in their pockets. But it also is a, a really a, just one more indication of how bad the labor shortages are. And we, we got to be careful because we want to provide kids opportunity and work experience. But they're, it's not just that they're, we can't look at them as cheap labor. Companies that are going to do the, the best service really need to nurture them and provide them an opportunity to learn and, and treat them well. Uh, and, and I guess the next part of this goes back to what happens to all the males uh, in this. And the male attrition rate, the male dropout rate is, this blew me away. I follow these stats all the time. And this stat blew me away. And I'll give credit to uh, a friend of mine, Gad Levinson from the Burning Glass Institute. He's the chief economist there. He looked at the number of males between 25 and 34 years old, core young men coming in the workplace. And 20 years ago, it was almost 90% of all young working and working age men, prime age men were in the workforce. It's now 55%. It's almost in half. Half of the, the men, the males who are eligible to get a job between 25 and 34 are no longer participating in the workforce. Now, many of them may just be sitting in their basement, hacking, playing game, or, or actually gaming is, is a whole industry. So you can make a lot of money. So they may have jobs. They just may be off the radar. But when 90% of young men make up the incarcerated in federal prisons, that's a problem. And then you look at opioid addiction. I mean, we, we, which are going to be probably other topics for, for other weeks on, on future shock 2.0, uh, but it is crazy. So we, we've got some real challenges here. We, we have good, good news is teens can now get a good job over the summer and work. Um, but, but one of the underlying problems with that is, is men. And the one final statistic that I'll give you is that during the pandemic, 71% of men made up all the college students who quit. 71% of all the, the students who dropped out of college during the pandemic were men. Uh, or actually, I'm sorry, it's worse than that. It's 78% of all the pandemic-related dropouts were men. And the highest rate of high school dropouts is still men. Not all jobs require a college degree, but every job requires at least a high school diploma. And we're, we're just not there. So we, we have some real challenges on our hands. Thank you, Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf is an author, workforce trends expert, and a top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR. Ira is also the host of the popular Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcast. You'll find it up there on all the great platforms. Listeners, I want to remind you of another great podcast to listen to. It's called Odeon Capital Conversations with the famed bank analyst, 
Dick Bovet and Matt Van Alstein, both of Odeon Capital Group, and it's hosted and moderated by yours truly. You will find this top-rated podcast up on Apple, Spotify, and on all the great platforms. The latest episode traces the origins and start of today's white-hot inflation, and it examines where we are going as interest rates creep up. So take a listen and subscribe for free to Odeon Capital Conversations. My guest is Kristen Van Uden, a spokesperson for Sophia Institute Press, here to talk about the release of the Antichrist, the final campaign against the Saviour by the late Vincent Maselli, and it's published by Sophia. And she will get into all the vivid detail and tell us what all of this is about. And later in the episode, Kristen will also talk about her own work on the persecution of Catholics under communism. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Uh, Kristen, welcome to Dig Life Deep. We have a great topic, a very thought-provoking and uh, interesting topic, and I can feel myself shuddering somewhat here. Trembling, maybe, is not the right word, uh, but we're going to talk about the Antichrist. I know some people listening right now will say, what's going on with you, John Byrne? Um, Where are you going with all this? But I want people to sort of keep an open mind. Uh, My shows uh, approach things with an open mind. We're not here to proselytize. We have people of all faiths, no faiths, and quite a lot of Catholic religious leaders in past episodes, and all bringing fascinating ideas, thoughts, and teachings even to the show. The whole idea of the Antichrist, it's not new, obviously, but it seems to kind of gone out of the conversation somewhat dismiss it as kind of medieval talk. So welcome to my show. Uh, Tell us about the Antichrist. And I know you're also out there promoting um, a new book. Well, not a new book. It's a reprint uh, called The Antichrist. What's going on here? Oh, thank you, John, so much for having me. So I am lucky to work at Sophia Institute Press, where as somebody who has been a reader my whole life, getting free Catholic books is quite a dangerous but wonderful (laughs) place to be. And this most recent book, as you mentioned, is a reprint from the 1980s called The Antichrist by Father Vincent Michelli, who was a Jesuit, very outspoken about the ills of his time. And he breaks this book into two sections. The first is tracing the scriptural, biblical, and throughout church tradition history of the Antichrist, where the Antichrist appears in the church's teaching and the signs to look for the man himself. And then in the second half of the book, he discusses what he calls modern shadows of the Antichrist. So particular movements, ideologies, and just forerunners that he identifies during his time living through the 1980s that he believes are setting the stage for the Antichrist to come maybe as early as during his lifetime. So he has since passed away. And spoiler alert, his conclusion is that he does not believe that the man of sin himself is on the earth just yet, but that we are sort of making the field ripe for his coming. So that these these forerunners, just as the prophets were sent to be harbingers of Christ himself, so too will the Antichrist have 
his own forerunners who come to pave the way for his arrivals. So we are approaching that, of course, as we move forward in time. We know our Lord said we know not the day nor the hour, so we can't know for sure when it will happen. But every day that we live is a day that we get closer to the Antichrist, but also that means closer to the second coming of Christ himself. And we know who wins the victory in the end. So while it is somewhat terrifying to think of the concept of the Antichrist, we need to remember that we know from scripture that Jesus kills him with the breath from his mouth. And Christ has already won the victory through the crucifixion and his passion. So it's something to be aware of. We must have that courage to to persevere throughout all ills that will come, but there's no chance that the Antichrist will win in the end. So the author said he didn't expect the Antichrist to come in his lifetime and he has since passed away. Is there any signs that the Antichrist could be present in our strange, disturbed and war-torn world today? I mean, there's so many bad things and, and disturbing things going on and we have economic and social chaos. We have the um, sad war in the Ukraine. Um, we have breakdowns in our society, chaos in our families, just a whole slew of things that would kind of maybe the kind of environment that this Antichrist might want to enter. It is possible, but it's also important to remember that throughout church history, Catholics of all ages have believed that they were living in the end times. So even in the early church, at the time when the book of Revelation, otherwise known as the book of the apocalypse, was written by the apostle John himself, people at that point believed that these events were imminent, that they would be happening within their lifetimes and Christ would come again right away. And obviously that did not happen. So any ill that has occurred throughout history, any sin, any genocide, any evil ideology has had Satan behind it, being the architect, the grand architect, of course. But also they are antichrist in the sense of using the term as an adjective. So Father Michelli likes to make that distinction of what he terms small a antichrists, which are things that serve the mission of the antichrist while not perhaps being um, of the man himself. So. One example throughout church history was within the Roman Empire, the emperors that persecuted Christians were pretty good candidates for Antichrist at that moment. Nero, for example, um, we know the story of the death of Nero after his horrid persecution of Christians. He, and this was not why he, he died, but he left the empire for a while. He went to Greece, and when he returned, there what had been basically a coup and another leader was more popular than him at the moment. So in disgrace, he retreated from politics and ended up killing himself. And the, this, as the story goes, he was too cowardly to even do the act to kill himself. And so he asked a servant to do it for him. He asked a servant to commit suicide as an example to encourage him. And then he ultimately had to be killed by that servant. But there were conspiracy theories that abounded after Nero's death that thought that since this man was so clearly anti-Christ, he must be the anti-Christ and that he had faked his own death and was being held in retainer for the imminent end of the world, which obviously did not happen. So we can yeah. say with, with full knowledge that, of course, Nero was promoting the agenda of the Antichrist, but was not the man himself. Uh, there are certain characteristics that we have from the church fathers and from scripture that people try to war game and try to figure out who this man will be. So one of these typical signifiers is something that 
people have tried to figure out for a while, that is, he will be born of a Hebrew nun. So looking at someone's lineage, what does that mean? Who is this man? He will come into power at about the same age as Christ and execute a ministry of the same amount of time. So the age of 30 and then a three and a half year ministry of destruction before the ultimate showdown. And then there's been a debate, um, you've heard of the post-millennial versus the pre-millennial schools of thought, but we know that the thousand years of peace will come at a time at the end of the world, but be they before or after the apocalyptic events has been a source of much debate throughout history. So in one school that believes that the thousand years of peace will happen after the apocalypse, this is a representative of those who would be agitating for the collapse in order to spur those thousand years of peace. So this is, you see this throughout tons of traditions. So the rapture would be an example of this. The 12th Imamism is another one. And then on the other hand, the thousand years of peace could come before the apocalyptic events, in which case one would try to seek to build the kingdom of God on earth to to prepare for that. Uh, The Catholic Church's position, as far as I understand it, is called amillennialism. So it's unclear exactly when these thousand years of peace will occur according to these events. But this book takes us through all of these different theories. The uh, harbingers of the Antichrist that we have from the church fathers, including the venerable Beads, 12, uh, as he calls them, actually 15, 15 signs of doom. And so there are many ways in which we can see leaders of today certainly espousing the doctrines of the Antichrist, but these personal signifiers are not quite there. And he puts to rest quite early on in the book, the myth that the Antichrist will be simply a movement. Uh, The Antichrist is known as the Simia Christi, the ape of Christ. So he mimics and mocks Christ in all things. So this means that he will be one individual man. And while movements can certainly be in his service. Let me stop you there, Kristen. This is really interesting and a significant point. So it's an individual man. And as I understand it, uh, roughly around the age of 30, when Christ was doing his ministry. That's right. Exactly. But nobody knows when this Antichrist is coming. He could be on earth right now. He could be. Yes. It's it's one of the things where we're we're given warnings. We're given, of course, the mark of the beast. There's been much discussion lately about what that could be. And especially in our technological world today, something that would be possible in a way that it has not been before. But this is one of the, uh, it's called the mystery of iniquity. One of the things that Christ himself tells us that we will not have an exact answer to until the moment that he has arrived. And we're also told from scripture that many of the elect, as they're known, so those who who are the faithful, who, who will be saved, will also be deceived by the Antichrist. So he will work signs and wonders, much like the magicians in the Old Testament. For example, we see them performing these magic tricks, which come from a diabolical power. They, they are supernatural, that is true. But just like Satan knows scripture back and forth, he also does have these supernatural powers left over from when he was an angel of great standing. So these, these miracles, so to speak, will be worked by the Antichrist to try to lead the faithful away, turn away from Christ and follow him as and worship him as if he were a god. Isn't there a certain element of danger uh, with the whole idea of the Antichrist, which is, you know, established in, in church teaching as that it may be um, used by the wrong kind of movements in the world 
uh, and people who say, oh, we know where the Antichrist is. Okay, we're going to go into our bunkers here. We're going to bring enough food, join our movement because the Antichrist is coming. Isn't there a kind of a danger that you could have had a kind of fanaticism? Because really what you're saying is even church elders, leaders, intellectuals, really nobody knows mm-hmm. when he's coming. That's a great point. And it brings to mind several contemporary movements. So the fear surrounding Y2K, for example, ended up to be <laughs> quite unfounded and and doomer prepperism in, pre- in preparation for the year 2012 was another one where there was this panic about potential apocalyptic events. And I think especially coming from the 20th century, when we have all and our ancestors lived in this fear of nuclear annihilation. And this is something that's discussed in the book because during the 1980s, the, the Cold War was still going on, of course, and you have this, this constant fear of death. And to be Catholic is to be eschatological in a sense, because while we'll never know when exactly the Antichrist will be on earth, our own death is something that we can be certain will happen within the next hundred years or so yeah. or less. And so we should be always living as if we're ready to meet our maker and have our personal judgment occur. So the it, people can definitely take it to extremes and it can be certainly mobilized politically to very bad and sordid ends. I know anyone agitating for a collapse of society, which we see today, on on certain sides from both the left and right, people look at how horrible the world is and just what a a mess politically, socially, and with war is happening right now and say, burn it all down and start over. And there have have been movements which which are based on this. And many of them purport to be very traditional and say, oh, well, if you'd like to build from the ashes and live a more traditional return to the land type of lifestyle, but in order to get there, you have to collapse the society and have millions of casualties. And these are not, this is not what our Lord gave us these prophecies to do. He does not want us to be trying to bring about the collapse of the world. It's all in God's timing. So all we can do is to live in the present moment as best we can without trying to force or catalyze anything. I'm sure there are many people, historians and others, who look at recent and past history and were tempted to view some of the political leaders back then as kind of antichrist figures, Adolf Hitler and Mm -hmm. and others who were warmongers and and spread a lot of destruction upon the earth. But Adolf Hitler wasn't the antichrist, obviously, but he was an antichrist, correct? Exactly. And that's a great distinction because Father Michelli actually writes about the main antichrists, plural, of the 20th century, how each of them was not the antichrist himself, but represented and paved the way for his doctrine. So the first one that he identifies is this heresy of modernism. So listeners may have heard of this before. Pope St. Pius X refers to it as the synthesis of all heresies. And it's a heresy that has plagued the church, especially from the 19th century forward, but really has its roots in the French Revolution in decentralizing God and the church and instead foregrounding these ideals, uh, these enlightenment. It has its roots in the French Revolution, an important to make here. Yep, exactly. So It's as I'll quote from Father Michelli here, he says, the trinity of parents responsible for the perversion known as modernism are its religious ancestor, the Protestant Reformation. So 
Again, we see the similarity between what happened with the Protestant Reformation and the French Revolution. Its philosophical parent, the Enlightenment, and its political pedigree, the French Revolution. So all of these have the similarity in that they are rejecting big R revelation. So rejecting the idea that Jesus revealed to the church all that is needed to be saved. It's almost a Gnosticism where they're seeking enlightenment beyond known revelation and putting the doctrine of man and of brotherhood centrally rather than the hierarchy. So from this, he talks about the movements that sprang from this, this theological heresy this theological indifferentism. So first, obviously, would be fascism. So the Nietzschean definition and deification of man as ubermensch, the idea that might makes right, uh, an overly, overly focused nationalism where you organize the planet according to identitarianism rather than the dignity of the soul is really a doctrine of antichrist. It almost always ends in genocide. And by their fruits, you shall know them, obviously. So we see the destruction wrought by this movement in the 20th century. Then on the flip side, communism, which of course postures itself as the ideological enemy of fascism, but really is substantially made of the same thing, made of that substance of totalitarianism. And when you think about it, any movement that promises a utopia here on earth is destined to fail just as the Tower of Babel was. It's, it's born of hubris because we know that perfection perfect utopia can only exist in heaven. So again, by their fruits, you'll know them, the absolute destruction brought by communism, the, the body count, the, um, the famines. It's, it's just quite obvious that this is something that claimed to be a savior, but was really an anti-savior. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Kristen Van Uden, a spokesperson for Sophia Institute Press, here to talk about the release of the Antichrist, the final campaign against the Saviour by the late Vincent Maselli, and it's published by Sophia. Here I continue my interview with Kristen about the flaws and fallacies in the extreme green movement and the connection to our discussion on the Antichrist. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I think of the extreme um, environmental movement, the green movement. I mean, let's, I'm going to, full disclosure, I love to see our environment and planet clean. I, I'm an outdoors person. I fish, hike, do all of those things. But I see in, in a lot of this ecological movement right now, the green movement, if you will, a certain kind of danger that you just sort of alluded to there. We can't perfect everything and it creates its own set of unintended consequences, which are pretty damaging if you kind of follow the logic. That's right. And I think one of the main dangers with the environmental movement is its anti-human dignity, in a sense, because I've met people who are so devoted to environmentalism that they have decided not to have children because they view children as a plague upon the planet. Mm. And this is just a total disorder and mis misordering of the supernatural order and of the order of creation that 
human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation and we must be stewards of the earth, but also we, <laughs> we have dignity and rights and, and exist and should exist. And you see this environmentalism used as a justification for abortion, as a justification for eugenics. And really the eugenicist movement is spurred on by the myth of population density and the, the overpopulation myth. And again, it's just a, mis a disorder a disordered way of thinking where it's almost a, a return to pagan earth worship where you don't see the value of the human person, but rather you see it, you view humans as a disease and that is totally just wrong metaphysically and also will lead to a whole bunch of ethical concerns where the ends justify the means up to and including the mass genocide of the unborn in service of this so-called global environmental ideal. Yeah. Pagan earth worship. That's, um, what you kind of can see in a lot of this extremism out there uh, and, a, and, a, and a weird idolatry. Um, looking again at the Antichrist, um, I'm just trying to get a, a more vivid idea of this. Is the Antichrist a political leader that may come? Is, is he a cultural leader? It, could it be a rock star? Could it be somebody from Hollywood? I mean, they would have to have a very big audience with all this um, global media, if you will, that they will be able to capture that global audience mm -hmm. in, in today's world. Sure. So he definitely will have to be famous in some way, but he also will be accompanied by the false prophet. So just as John the Baptist preceded Christ, he will have someone who arrives on the scene shortly before his ministry and serves more of that explicitly religious role. So uh, often people have said, oh, well, maybe a pope himself or a religious leader is, is a candidate for Antichrist. And that is possible. But we also have to remember this other figure will be there and the two of them will work in tandem. Another thing we know about the Antichrist is that he will seek to be worshipped as Christ was worshipped. So he will likely mobilize political forces or even organized religious bodies to that end, but he will, it, his fame will go beyond just the typical vanity and people will have actual religious supernatural worship for this man. So that is something that I know idolatry today takes on many almost metaphorical forms where when you think of, oh, what have I made an idol in my life other than God, you can say money or fame, fortune, things like that. And so he will certainly have that aspect of fame seeking, but also there is that quite literal aspect of worship and return to a literal idolatry of this person that I think is still somewhat foreign to modern sensibilities and a little bit more difficult for our secular uh, minds to grasp. Don't we see some of that worship of some cultural figures today and um, Hollywood figures even? Uh, some of it's innocent, some of it's fun, but there's another aspect of it seems almost quite bizarre and bordering on the uh, dangerous. Definitely. They've developed cults almost where the these people and we're told in the Gospels, place not your trust in princes and even someone who is working actively for the glory of God. If they are given an undue place of precedence in your life above above God, then it can only ever turn into idolatry. So, yes, I think this has been definitely exacerbated by social media where 
we used to be able to only access the lives of these celebrities through magazines, through TV. It was very compartmentalized. There was paparazzi culture, but that was seen as sort of an anomaly. Whereas today, we're all the paparazzi, <laughs> but we're all also all the celebrities. Mm. And that's another issue where on, on social media, anyone regardless of merit, regardless of field or what they accomplish or do can become famous simply for being famous. The people who are considered influencers on social media often have nothing special that they actually do. They just are famous for being famous. So we've seen this model introduced with reality television, with shows like the Kardashians, where they're basically famous for being famous. And so you have a double-edged sword of simultaneously worshiping these cultural icons materially, but then also seeking to become that yourself. And this just overload of vanity where everyone is his own little God who is constantly worried about follower count and developing the cult of the self. And when you start thinking in turn in those prideful and selfish terms, it becomes a lot easier to fall for the popularity contest and to fall in line behind one of these cult leaders. Cardinal Newman identified some of the forerunners and kinds of societies that would give us some indication of the Antichrist. So one of Cardinal Newman's most important contributions to apocalyptic studies was his recognition that the Roman Empire will have been completely dissolved by the time the Antichrist arrives. So just from a a sort of intellectual way of approaching this, that is something that scholars have taken into account. And what does that exactly mean? Does, if the church exists, of course, within the reanimating the the Roman empire, is that what that means? Is it the Holy Roman empire? How can we be sure that the vestiges of the Roman empire do not remain on the earth anymore? So that's one of the open questions that he really brought to the light. And then in a more metaphorical sense, Newman writes of how He was grateful that, and of course he was a convert, he was grateful that he lived at a time when the enemies of the church were out in the open, so to speak. Whereas what we see today is often a subversion of the church from within, almost an infiltration. And rather than being asked to apostatize publicly as the martyrs of old did with a very dramatic performative act of stepping on an icon or pinching a grain of incense to the gods, instead we're asked to compromise on just one doctrine or just one moral teaching of the church until eventually all of these small compromises amount to a full apostasy by the end of one's life. So he writes about how it is not an enviable position, um, I'll read a quote from him here. It may not be a persecution of blood and death, but of craft and subtility, not of miracles, but of natural wonders and of human skill, human acquirements in the hands of the devil. Satan may adopt the more alarming weapons of deceit. He may seduce us in little things, move the church, not all at once, but little by little from her true position. So he warns us of this subtlety of the devil's tricks in this final period where he will get you to give up little by little your faith. And at that point, the Antichrist, it it would be ripe for his arrival because a weakened church is one like a wounded animal that is more basically um, vulnerable to attack. I'm trying to also understand. So the Antichrist arrives on earth and um, we may not be able to identify this Antichrist, but it's a male figure, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what happens then? What, what happens to the world? What, we, we start worshipping this antichrist and then we all start going crazy. 
So he arrives and he reigns for three and a half years and he will deceive even the elect. So yes, we basically at that point, the world will turn towards him, hail him as the savior. Uh, another interesting sign is the role of the of Judaism in this and how the Antichrist is someone who will deceive the Jews into thinking that he is the savior long awaited for and prophesied in the Old Testament. Another one of the signs of his imminent arrival is actually the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So anytime someone makes an effort to make that happen, <laughs> alarm bells start going off and people worry and wonder, is this, is this a sign of the Antichrist's arrival? Where he will walk into the temple and those who maybe had rejected Jesus for fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies will spin them to fit to this man. And so he will deceive many who are scripturally waiting for the promised Messiah. But then we know that the Jews en masse will convert to Catholicism. And that will be something, I forget if that happens before or after um, the death of the Antichrist, but that will be a main tenet and uh, characteristic of the apocalypse as a whole. So Father Michelli has a, a section in here on Zionism and how the very fact that there is now the state of Israel and there is there are these efforts to rebuild the temple are throughout history really an unprecedented uh, set of events that of course were spurred by the persecution of the Holocaust but are something that makes it possible to rebuild the temple in a way never before. So after that there are varying uh, signs that prophets and thinkers have given, I will, I'll read off some of the 15 signs of doom that are those more practical, apocalyptic, physical events that we all tend to think of when we think of the apocalypse. So he believes that these 15 signs will precede the end of the world. So number one, the sea will rise 40 cubits and will be as a wall, which sounds an awful lot like a tsunami. Mm -hmm. uh, it will recede again, so it's scarcely to be seen. And then it will be normal as in the beginning, which also sounds like a tsunami receding. Mm -hmm. Marine animals will cry out, waters will burn, all plants will be covered with a bloody dew, buildings will be destroyed, stones will strike each other and divide into three parts, an earthquake, hills and valleys leveled, Men will come forth from caverns and run about as if mad. Stars will fall. The dead will rise. We see this in actually most, if not all of the prophecies that there will be this, um, as we know, the resurrection of the body where souls will reanimate the body and be presented for the final judgment before Christ. And then finally, the earth will burn at the end of that. So these events, while not in such great detail, were on the most part, consistent throughout throughout prophecies in that there will be a great destruction physically of the earth, and then the dead will rise, the wheat will be separated from the chaff, and even those who have been personally judged will be brought before Christ after he kills the Antichrist, and this will be, this is the final judgment, and then go to their ultimate destination. So, we will know when it's complete um, because we know we will see Jesus kill the Antichrist himself. And so no one will be deceived at that point anymore. But there is still the danger that those who have chosen to follow Antichrist will still persist in rejecting Christ towards the end. So we, we know that Jesus wins, but it's a matter just, just as the devil has always throughout history tried to steal souls away from God as his means of victory because he knows he doesn't have the ultimate victory, but he still can one by one take souls away from God. And that's what he'll be trying to do up until the end.
Are you referring here to the second coming? Yes. Yep. So that the second coming of Christ is when he will descend. Typically, it's it's understood that just as the ascension was an ascent on a cloud, physically, um, body, blood, soul, and divinity, he will then descend that way and restore order, defeat the Antichrist, kill him, and then bring about the destruction of the earth and the second judgment. But, but I don't think it's quite understood sometimes that there is a second coming or it's kind of like sidelined or dismissed in conversation the way you laid it out um so this this antichrist will he walk the earth will he have a jet we talked about mass media so we're in a very interesting age of kind of um how things can be disseminated so quickly yes he'll walk the earth and he father Michelli makes the point that some scholars have tried to claim that the Antichrist will be Satan incarnate. So just as Jesus obviously was God incarnate, they claim that the Antichrist will be a similar, similarly conceived. But he puts that myth to rest and says that it's not possible for Satan to do that. And so this person, the Antichrist, will be fully man. He will have he will he will not be Satan just possessing a human body. He will actually be a conceived man mm-hmm. and, and born through the usual fashion. So he he will grow up, he'll live on the earth. It's not clear whether or not he will have knowledge, self-knowledge, or at one point that knowledge will be imbued as to his own role in bringing in the end of the world. But he will also have this supernatural sense about him because through these diabolical powers, he will be imbued with these magical powers, as we've discussed, these ability to work false miracles and these uh, signs and wonders that are manifestations of the supernatural, but of the diabolical. And then finally, we know that he will be incredibly charismatic. And that, of course, is one of the features that will lead him to create this cult following. So he's not going to be somebody in the shadows. He's certainly, and I would say, with media today it would be a global influence uh, i don't see how it could be otherwise although mm. that that detail isn't doctrinal but i mean there are some <laughs> probably remote areas of the world in which they don't know who the, the most famous the rich and famous are but uh Again, I think those areas are becoming well, uh, much less exactly right there are people out there uh and i don't want to offend anyone but would say oh uh, various popes through history were the Antichrist, and there are even some, I would say, conservative Catholics, perhaps, um, however you define that, it's a strange term, regardless, um, that, oh, current pope is acting like an Antichrist, because a lot of his, um, the changes he's trying to introduce are not popular with a lot of large sections of the Catholic community. I mean, we it is possible that the Antichrist would be in that role. And one of the things that we know is that during the Antichrist's three-year reign, he will persecute Catholics. And we are told that this will be the worst persecution ever throughout the church's history. So when you think of... So, so to stop you there, uh, Kristen, there's going to be a persecution because I yes. have that in my notes. And just continue on that. And I'm sure some people are uh, pulling their hair out at the moment and getting mad with me. Oh, gosh, you're frightening the lives out, out of us. But <laughs> this is you're just laying it out. And by the way, what you're telling us now, you represent Sophia Institute Press, a very reputable, distinguished publishing house of many Catholic tomes and publications. And a lot of great writers are published out of your company. So what you're telling me is 
Catholic Church teaching. It, this is not some way out stuff you're describing here. Right. This is all taken from the magisterially uh, approved writings of the church and scripture. And that's what I love about this book is that this throughout the 20th century, there was so much fiction, especially written about the end of the world, movies made. And that's part of what spurred Father Michelli to write this book, actually, is to give the actual Catholic teaching on this rather than the fantastical, sensationalist uh, dramatizations of the end of the world. Tell us more about the persecution. Sure. So we're told that it's going to be the worst persecution in the church's history, even rivaling that of the the, the martyrs in the early church. The For the first few centuries, almost every pope was martyred, and we just have thousands of unnamed martyrs even from that time. So this persecution shall be even worse than that. And like both Cardinal Newman and Father Michelli claim, the persecution will probably include blood, but will also be this bloodless persecution that they described where you're you're asked to compromise on matters of faith. The faith becomes corrupted. Uh, we know Paul VI himself even said, the Second Vatican Council, the, the smoke of Satan has entered the church by some crack. So the constant assaults of the devil on the institution of the church tried to get its leaders to defect, to put aside the faith and to lead the faithful into either a watered down version of Catholicism or flat out heresy, we know the church is constantly assailed so that this persecution very well may come from within the institutional church. So that is a possibility. I'll read this passage from St. Augustine where he he ties some of these things together, some of these the signs and the persecution itself. He says, in connection with the last judgment, the following events shall come to pass. Elias the Tishbite shall come. So he's referring there to Elijah, who, as we know, in the Old Testament was brought up it into a place to be held for the end of the world, body and soul. So that's another sign is he and Elias, they're um, known as the two witnesses will return to help combat the Antichrist. So the Elias shall come, the Jews shall believe, the Antichrist shall persecute, Christ shall judge, the dead shall rise, the good and wicked shall be separated, the world shall be burned and renewed. All these things we believe shall come to pass, but how or in what order human understanding cannot perfectly teach us, but only the experience of the events itself. My opinion, however, is that they'll happen in the order in which I have related them. So we see in St. Augustine's opinion, the persecution of Christians will occur before the second coming. And then when Christ returns, of course, those martyrs who, who died during that persecution will have gone to heaven already, but he shall judge those who remain. So those who persecuted the church will be judged for their actions by Christ himself at the second coming. Why will Catholics be persecuted in such large numbers? So the devil knows that the church is the repository of truth on earth. And so we see, especially interestingly, in communist countries in the past century and in every empire of pagan origin throughout history, this intense focus on persecution of the Catholic Church specifically. So that is one pointer as to why it's right. Um, the devil will try to get you in any way that he can, and he doesn't care how far you apostatize or how bad your mortal sin is, because all it takes is one. So if he can keep you in mortal sin of your own accord without assailing you through per out external persecutions, then he'll do that because it's easier. It's, it's less effort for him. But we'll see that he turns his attacks most violently against the church because that is the mystical body of Christ on earth. That is the repository of faith. And that is the only 
it's Noah's Ark. It's the bark of Peter. That's the way that we get out of here alive and go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so he'll try to get you, you'll see the, the holier that the saints get, the more that they're persecuted. Padre Pio, many are probably familiar with, had physical attacks by the devil. He physically fought with demons at night, often almost every night. Because his degree of holiness, the devil knew he couldn't get him through sin. He couldn't get him through temptations to sin. So he had to escalate those attacks to be physical. This is also the principle we see behind exorcisms and possessions where the devil, if he can get you to mortally sin, he doesn't need to possess you because he's already got you on the way to hell. But a possession is really the last ditch effort because no one can deny the existence of the supernatural after witnessing a possession and an exorcism, right? So it's actually ironically something that often strengthens people's faith. So this, this escalation of the intensity of the attacks is in direct proportion to the holiness and truth and virtue of the person or institution concerned. So the devil is filled with hatred and envy for human beings because God incarnated as one of us and as a fallen angel, he was so as an angel, he was so above us mere humans that the idea that God would become as this tiny infinitesimally smaller being as a human was completely out of bounds to him. And he, he couldn't deal with that. And so any soul that he can take away from God, he does so to make them as miserable as he is in that pathological pride and envy. And so the church is the main target because of that. And he'll, we'll, we are told that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church as an institution. But again, he can try to pick off those souls from, from the outskirts. So that's why it's so important to remain close to the sacraments and, and remain in virtue. I don't want to sow any irrational fear and... Um scare people off as it were but you know you talk about the persecution do we have any sense of how large the scale of that we know there's a lot of catholics in the world today it's a huge portion of our world's population but who would be facing persecution and would there be some trigger for it will it be related to uh, the Catholic accepting the um, word of the Antichrist or subscribing to something or what will it be centered around this persecution? So from my understanding, it will be the entirety of the church globally that will be persecuted, but it will be that remnant of Catholics who hold true to the faith and who do not follow the Antichrist who will have that ire turned against them. Because similarly to the principles we were just discussing, if the Antichrist can get a practicing Catholic to apostatize by turning away from Christ and following him instead, he really has no need to persecute that person. It's just like what happened with the martyrs. If they would just worship the pagan gods once, if they would only marry into a pagan family and perform the ceremonies, that's all it took, then they would let them have their Catholicism over on the side. So it's those Catholics who stay true and who refuse to break the first commandment in that way and who worship only Christ, who that persecution will be levied towards mostly so it's kind of like the slippery slope theory there you take one step and you you slip a little further and then pardon upon all hell breaks loose so what's the connection between the antichrist and satan so are they one of the same or is there a connection so father michelli writes that the antichrist can rightly be considered the son of satan whether literally or figuratively he is doing his work he writes that God has an enemy in Satan, but not an equal. 
and how that is an important distinction because then the Antichrist is the enemy of Christ, but in no way is the equal. So what he means by this is that Satan is materially a creature. He was made by God. He was an angel. That's how he was created. And so he is not anywhere on the same level as God. The huge gaps between God and angel are, you know, just something that cannot be defined because God is omnipotent. There is only one God that's inherent in just the existence and understanding of God. So when you think about the, the small level of power that Satan really has when compared to God, he magnifies it and he certainly has torn caused undue destruction on the earth and from the very first humans from the fall. So he he does have this power. It is not something to be irrationally afraid of because we know that we have recourse to God's grace and to the um, to our salvation. But to keep it in perspective, he has power that is nowhere near close to God. And so this is similar to the Antichrist. He has this inverted sense where he believes that he is the equal to Christ, but in, a, in fact, he is not. And his relationship to Satan is one of of doing like they, they, they work in lockstep. They are um, doing each other's work. He is the representative of Satan on earth and they have the same goals and they have, I think probably equal amounts of pride. So it calls to mind the screw tape letters where <laughs> the, the love lost between the demons is um, very interesting to see because they have the sort of fake love for each other, which is really just hatred because that's all they're capable of. Kristen, we'll come back to the book in a moment. I just want to ask you uh, quickly about um, your studies of the persecution of Catholics under communism. Um, and it sort of relates to the book as well, I suppose, directly or indirectly. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, that's great. This is one of the doctrines of the Antichrist that Father diagnoses in this book. But I studied Russian and, um, and history in undergrad and began a project back then where I interviewed people who were Catholic and who survived communism fled and were persecuted for their faith. So one interviewee actually was going to underground masses in Budapest, Hungary, and was found out and fled the country. And after he left, the communist authorities faked a death certificate rather than admit that someone had number one wanted to and number two succeeded in fleeing the, the glorious regime. I'm continuing that research. I'm actually in the process of writing a book with Sophia based on several more interviews. So I'm currently still soliciting interview subjects if anyone would like to participate and has a, a story they'd like to tell. But really what we see is a new age of martyrs where often you were told if you apostatized, you'll go free or you'll have benefits in society, but it never, it never works that way. No matter how often or early you bow to the mob, they'll still come for you in the end and the irrational hatred that the communistic systems all throughout the world, which of course profess atheism as one of their main uh, virtues, had for the Catholic Church was really something that, that rivals persecutions throughout church history. So I was incredibly inspired by the fortitude and perseverance of Catholics who suffered any range of persecution from social, academic, and economic opportunities being taken away to starvation, famines, up into the point of physical torture and martyrdom itself, where wherever they were placed and whatever they were called to do, they refused to compromise even one inch. And the fact that this all happened <laughs> within many of our lifetimes and these regimes only collapsed within the past 30 years or so was incredible to me. And I think it's a, a story that 
often remains to be told. Um, many people have a false vision of communism. You see people celebrating it with the Che Guevara t-shirts, for example. And I think this, this bloody history and this, this truly demonic history needs to be told. What's your take on what's happening in China and the Catholic Church? Is there really a functioning Catholic Church in China? Are Catholics persecuted in China? Poor Cardinal Zen is such a hero for what he's been been going through and his followers there as well. The situation in China is terrible because they had agreed to allow the state-run church to really call the shots. And unfortunately, that is the church that the Vatican has its, its uh, relations with for the most part. So any institutionalized state church that has any sort of influence from <laughs> any government, because government's cannot get their power from any source other than God. And if they are trying to supersede that authority, then they're acting under false authority. But especially an atheistic communist government can only serve to water down the faith and present to the faithful the court-approved Catholicism, which is not the whole and inviolate Catholicism handed down from Christ through apostolic succession. So it's, it's really, it would be, I can understand there that the impossible situation of those choosing between the institutional uh, state-approved church and the true underground church. It just takes incredible bravery, but we can't allow uh, the church anywhere to be corrupted by nationalist or so otherwise secular forces that really corrupt the message at its core. Well, I'd love to have you back when your book gets published. Any sort of timeline on that? Probably looking at a November, December 2023 publication. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly talk about that. So uh, quickly back to the Antichrist and the book uh, that's been reprinted. Uh, give us the full title. Where can people order it and any other details that are important? Sure. So the full title is The Antichrist, The Final Campaign Against the Savior. Looks like this, published yeah. by Father Vincent Michelli, Jesuit. It's available at sophiainstitute.com. If you go to our homepage and click more books, you should see it there. And I believe it's also available on Amazon. Kristen Van Uden, thank you for being a guest on my show. It's been really interesting and good luck. Thank you so much for having me. God bless. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.